Romans chapter 7, verse 7. We've been walking through the, the gospel of, of Jesus presented in the book of Romans for the last few months. This week's message is called The Deadly Team, Law and Sin. Romans chapter 7 will be in the ESV on the screen for the most part, uh, but you can follow along in your own version. Before I became a full-time pastor, I used to coach just a stone's throw down the street here at K, uh, on K Beach at Cook Inlet Academy. Got some former players here in the house today, former coach in the house today as well. Go Eagles. Uh, I, um, what's, loons, that's right. I tried to change it to loons, and for some reason the school didn't buy in. I don't know. That was crazy. Um, but we, uh, we, were a small, we were a small school, uh, and I was, as the coach, I always found myself very um, calm and, and very uh, under control, uh, had, had a rein on my tongue, was very respectful to refs at all times. I uh, just kind of went with whatever they said, never argued, never complained. There's no photographic evidence to the contrary, right? It was just always, always a good boy. Uh, but as a small school man, not only did we not have the capacity to have things like tryouts and then make cuts, we were practically begging kids to play on the team. Like, I'll pay you money if that's legal. Like, we just need more bodies. You got XY chromosomes, you got 2.0 GPA, you're on the boys' team. Like, that's all Cook Inlet Academy. Our model, motto is no talent required, right? You just need a pulse, and you're with us, right? That, that's kind of how we like to, to roll. No offense to any of those boys. All the guys here were, were, were good basketball players. Uh, but one year, we did have this one kid in particular, and he joined the school, joined the basketball team, and it's a small town, so I don't want to call him out, but just in order to dignify him in the name of Jesus, we'll call him the Spaz, all right? Now, now this kid, when he stepped on the basketball court, he, he looked the part, okay? He was good looking. He was tall. He was strong. He had muscles in places I didn't even know were possible. Like, this guy looked like he should be a basketball player. And I thought, man, this guy could be a great addition to our Bad News Bears, right? So I'm hoping that this is a key part of the team. Spaz looked great until... I asked him to do something. And we started out with some wind sprints. And when I said go, this kid burst out of the gates. And you ever see Bambi? Okay? You know that scene where Bambi's slipping up on the ice? Well, this kid made Bambi look like Nancy Kerrigan, right? Made, made him look like something out of Swan Lake. This kid was a mess. Then we tried to do layups. And when he went to the layup line, as he went up to try to make a layup, it looked like someone came from the back of him and tased him. Right? He went up and he was just like <laughs> everywhere. Limbs are flying. Like we're ducking. We're hiding babies. Like it was a terrifying event. And then we got to the complicated drills. The three-man weave where you're passing and weaving. And I just called him over here and I said, son, we're going to have you sit this one out because I'm afraid that you might kill somebody, right? You're going to watch for a little bit before you participate. See, he looked great until you told him to do something, in which case his spazziness became abundantly clear. Now, now was he just as clumsy? Was he just as, as spazzy sitting on the bench as he was when he was playing? Yes, he was. But it was my commands that revealed just how clumsy and inept this young brother was. And what we're going to see today, and Paul's going to show us in the letter of Romans, he's going to lovingly tell us, we're that spaz. That we may look great, but the moment that he tells us to go in and get into the game and on our own, we're going to see what happens when we try to please God in our own efforts. And you remember this outline in Romans, we've been talking, we, we walked through this, and, and Paul said at the beginning of Romans, he said, listen, if we're going to keep that sports analogy, none of you can make God's team. 
right? God's standard, if you're going to be with me, you're going to be on my team, you've got to be perfect like I am. You've got to be holy like I am. And he says, none of us, we all fall short. That no one would make the team. We're all cut from God's team because of our sin nature. But then what he told us was the good news in the next three chapters. He told us what we could never earn, God freely gave us in Jesus. And he says that, no, you can't do anything right, but Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. He got cut for you, and now we're given a spot on the team. It's Jesus' spot. And Jesus is, is, is the captain, right? And in him, we're accepted by God. We're given his righteousness. And then we saw in, in Romans 6, as we start to look at how to grow as a believer, that we saw the, the truth that, man, uh, not only did he save us from sin's penalty, He also saved us from sin's power, that our old sin nature was crucified to the cross with Jesus, was buried into the ground, and now we are born again, a resurrected life. The very life of Jesus dwells in me. The sin is no longer my master. Amen? We are free from the power of sin. And you know, sitting on the bench, I can look pretty good, right? I got my Jesus jersey on, rocking a headband, probably need a mouth guard in there. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to play. But the second that God looks at me and he goes, okay, get in there. Frankino, you're up. Go out there and love somebody. I want you to get into the action. And I jump up and I look back at God and I go, okay, go, coach, I got it. Thanks for putting, in, putting me on the team. And then I tell him, this is important, I got it from here. Like, thanks for saving me. Thanks for getting me on the team. And now I'll do it. I'm going to impress you, God. You're going to love the way I play for you. You're going to love the noise that I'm about to bring. And then I get out on the court. And as a believer, I go try to love my neighbor, and I'm the spaz, right? I'm the one getting tased. Like, I'm the one trying to do what God's called me to do, but I can't do it. I'm trying not to lie. I'm trying not to lust. I'm trying not to hate. I'm trying to be patient. I'm trying to be gentle. I'm trying to have self-control, but I can't do it. I don't know if what your experience has been as a believer, young or old, man, maybe you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and there's a, there was a joyful moment when you passed from death to life. But then you found out, as you began to, to try to do the right thing for God, right, the right intent, trying to impress, trying to please Him, trying to do what He wants me to do, trying not to sin, trying to love people, trying to make disciples, but in that process, we find just like, like, a, like a newborn baby, but I can't walk that I'm falling down, that I'm drooling all over the place. I am a, a mess. What Paul wants to show us today in Romans chapter 7, in this, in this part, Romans 6 through 8, is he's talking about our growth as a believer. See, he's going to show us that the same way that we were born as believers initially is the exact same way that we grow. That we were saved by faith and not of our own works. And it's the same thing as we grow. As we become more like Jesus, this is, cannot be works. This cannot be self-effort. This has to be faith in Jesus who's going to do it in and through me. And what he wants to show us today in Romans 7 is that when you combine a holy law and you combine, combine it that with this sinful flesh, all you get is death. All you get is destruction. Now, last week, we said that we are free from the law. And the, and the analogy of the husband and wife, that we've been set free, we've been delivered from the law. And as you start hearing the way that Paul talks about that freedom from the law, you can start to ask, is Paul a law hater? Like, like all the negative talk about you're no longer under the law, the law has nothing to do with you anymore, that seems to imply that the law is bad. And, and Paul anticipates a question from his audience, especially a lot of these people were Jewish people. Their whole existence had centered around keeping this law. 
And he goes, now you're telling us that there's something wrong with this law. This is actually how he intros this section. He goes, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? Is there, is there something wrong with the law? And this morning, he's going to answer that question. And Paul's going to show us four purposes that we see from the law in verses 7 through 13. And, and to give us an outline, we're going to see that the law reveals sin. The law arouses sin or provokes it. Number three, the law is used by sin to deceive and kill. And then finally, the law points us to the sin crusher. Sounds like a good WWE name, right? So let's look at these together. Number one, the law reveals sin. Verse seven, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So many of you know, if, if you know me, you've been around here for a while, um, I got some pretty bad hips. And I recently have been kind of looking at, seeing a couple doctors about what to do with those hips. And I was just at a, seeing a doctor a couple weeks ago and, and seeing what I needed to do to fix them. Now, the doctor, he saw me waddling in through that door, right? And he knew exactly what the problem was when, when he saw me. But he needed to reveal to me what the problem was, the ignorant patient. So this doctor took a very expensive picture called an MRI. And he wanted to show me exactly what my problem was, the depth of my problem. Now, I couldn't get, I couldn't download my actual hip, but this is kind of a similar uh, deal where I've got this, this disease called avascular necrosis, where there's no blood flowing to, to the hip, and eventually the hip just kind of deteriorates. And right now, on my picture, at the very top of that ball joint, the femoral head, there is just these giant cysts sitting on top of the hip. It's just dead bone. And he said, I have early onset arthritis. I said, eventually, and hopefully we can punt this into my 50s, but eventually you're going to need new hips, two brand new hips outside of yourself. Now, what he needed to show me is, look, Justin, no amount of physical therapy or ibuprofen is going to get you through this situation. It is much deeper. The problem is much deeper than anything you can do. We're not improving your old hips. Eventually, you just need a brand new set of hips. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, the doctor knew my problem, but I needed to know my problem. And listen to me this morning. God knows your problem. He knows your problem. God knows my problem, that he knows that on our own, apart from Jesus, that there, we are nothing but a head-to-toe sinner. He sees the depth of our problem. The trouble is, I don't know it. Or, or maybe oftentimes, I just I don't believe it. See, we know we're good at going, yeah, hypothetically, I'm a sinner. Like, nobody in here would probably come up to me and say, nope, I don't sin. I don't know what the problem is with all you guys, but I got my act together. Like, all of us would acknowledge that we're sinful and fall short. But do we truly believe, do we truly believe that we can do nothing on our own to please God or to become better? And often, on a daily basis, the way I live contradicts that belief. Because you know what I'm trying to do? I find myself in my pride still trying to do something to please God in my own. I try to find that I find that I'm trying to earn his love, earn his acceptance, be validated by God through my own merit badges. And so God, he's got to bring us to this place where we understand and believe that we are utterly helpless without him. And one of his main tools, just like the doctor used the MRI, his spiritual MRI on our hearts is the law. His standard of what it means to be perfect and holy like he is. 
And you remember the parable, or the, the story, I should say, in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is talking to this guy. They call him the rich young ruler. And Jesus uses this as he talks to this, this man. And in this guy, this guy claims to have kept the law. But Jesus exposes him by saying this. Okay, if that's true, then I want you to sell everything, including your cute little teddy bear there. I want you to sell it all, and I want you to follow me. And what happened? The man went away sad. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus had, had revealed what was in his heart. See, outwardly, he had kept the law. He hadn't killed anybody. He hadn't slept around. Like, like externally, he looked pretty good. But Jesus looked deeper. See, the, the MRI takes the picture of our, our hearts. And what Jesus exposed, and the same, the, the verse in here in Romans 7 talks about do not covet. And Jesus exposed that in his heart was coveting. Now, the word covet, it means simply to desire. Now, is there anything wrong with having desires? No, of course not. God gave us desires. But what the problem is, is when we de desire something more than God, when we trust in something else other than, than him, it becomes a sinful desire, and it becomes coveting. And so what Jesus used here in the law was to reveal that the man's heart desired money more than God. Listen, he, desired, he trusted in his 401k more than he trusted in his father. And he wasn't willing to leave it all behind and trust that Jesus was enough. Now, is the law the problem here? The law is not the problem. The law is simply exposing what the problem is. The problem is this man's wicked heart. See, when I went in for this MRI, the problem was not the MRI. I didn't look at it and go, you wicked doctor, right? How dare you do that to my hips or to get mad at the MRI machine and start breaking that? Because the, the MRI is good. It just simply shows what's bad. The doctor's good. Don't hate on the doctor. Listen to the doctor and hear how you have to heal the wound. We need to know and believe that we are sinners. And just like the nerves on our fingers tell us that a stove is hot, and you need to get your hand away or you're going to burn yourself. The law tells our conscience that something's wrong, that we are guilty. So not only, not only does the law reveal our sin to us, but it also arouses our sin. It makes us sin more. Look at, look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, what's he saying here? Well, I don't know if you've ever had the following experience. Let's say that you're in a church service. You can imagine that hypothetical situation. And the pastor's preaching. And something makes you giggle. All right? You've been here. Now, I'm not saying, like, like oh, you're supposed to laugh, like when I tell one of my hilarious jokes. But I'm saying, like, something happens, like somebody makes a face, or, you know, someone, you know, passes gas or something like that, and you immature people think that that's funny, and you start to laugh. Now, what happens in that moment? You try to suppress the giggle, but the, the more you try to suppress the giggle, what happens? The more you tr you, you're going to start to giggle. Why? Because you know you're not supposed to be giggling in that moment, and you're going... And you're trying to, because you know, because here's, here's what's happening. There's this anti-giggle law during something like a church service, and what it actually does is it arouses more giggling. Like if that just happened in, in just some general time of life, you might go, huh, and then move on. But because you know you're not supposed to be giggling, it actually makes you want to giggle more. And I'm watching. I'm watching. Now, I, like, I love this comic strip. It tells us a little bit about the, the essence of human nature. 
And that you see here this guy who probably typically would never have any idea, even think about juggling machetes. But because this, this sign says not to, what happens? So suddenly I got this urge to juggle machetes. That sounds awesome, right? And, and this, this law about not juggling machetes actually arouses in him this desire to do the very thing the law tells him not to do. You know this in your own life when you've walked by one of these signs. Do not touch the wet paint. And all of a sudden, inside of you rises up this character, right? Like you just got to do it. I never wanted to touch that wall, but now that I've been told not to, oh man, I got an itchy finger, right? I want to touch the paint. Why? Like what is that going to gain you? A painted finger, right? It's, it's ridiculous. And Paul, he says here, man, the law says don't covet. And what happens? When he sees this law, it actually arouses in him the desire to covet. It actually produces all kinds of coveting, he says. Why? Because listen, our sinful nature at its core is proud. And it wants to be its own God. And so when an outside source tries to tell us what's right or wrong, tell us what to do and not to do, that sinful nature rears its head and says, uh-uh, no one else is going to be my boss. I'll tell you what's right or wrong. I'll tell you what I'm going to do or not do. And the law combined with the sinful nature produces rebellion, which leads to death. And you remember, this is how it all started at page one in the Bible. Adam and Eve in the garden. They've got it good, man. God is walking with them. He's given them everything they need. He gives them one rule. Don't eat from this one tree. And what do they do? They break the one rule that God has given them. And why wouldn't you trust God? He's put you in this garden, just the two of you, naked, frolicking, eating fruit. Life doesn't get any better than this. They choose to not trust their God. And they break the one rule he gave them. This is what happens when you combine. This is the equation. When you combine the law and sin, the, the, the fleshly man, you're going to get destruction. You're going to get death. That's what's going to happen. What's Paul telling us here in Romans 7? And look at the wicked thing that sin does with what's good. Number three, the law is used by sin to deceive and kill. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Now, what's he saying here? Remember last week, we talked about this illustration of this woman at the beginning of Romans 7, and she's got two husbands. The first husband was this, the law. The law, that, that this guy that made these demands on her, but didn't give her. Remember, she had no arms, no legs, no ability to do what she was told. So the law told her what she needed to do, but did not give her any power to do it. And that's the law in our lives. It can tell us the problem, but it cannot offer a solution. And what, what Paul is, is arguing here, and this is, I apologize for somewhat of a graphic illustration, but um, the law is, he says, it's sort of like a surgeon's scalpel. Like, what's the intent of that scalpel? It, it can hurt you. It will cut you. But ultimately, the intent is to heal you and give you life. The, the law is good. The law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. But what sin does is it takes this tool, the scalpel, that was supposed to be used for my healing and my life, and instead it slashes my throat. It takes a good thing and perverts it and uses it to kill me. Now how does the law do that? How does the law sin and deceive? Or how does, excuse me, how does sin do that? How does sin kill and deceive through the law? Well, I think there's a couple of things that we, we can see. Sin, sin's lies. And at first you're going to look at these and you might seem, they might seem like the opposite of each other. But at the, at the core, it's, it's the same thing, I, I believe. 
The first lie is that you can't keep this rule. You cannot keep this law saying, you can't, listen, sin says you can't keep this lie even if you wanted to. And, and, and here's the lie. There's no hope in you pleasing God, so you might as well just get that silly little notion out of your head and do whatever you want. If I can't keep the law, if I can't please God, then I'm just going to go do whatever I can to find as much temporary pleasure here on earth as I can right now. The word we use for this is license. License just means permission to do something. It's like when you got your driver's license, you're permitted to drive. And there's this idea, this spiritual license is basically saying, I can do, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm giving myself permission since I can't please God, since I can't keep his commands, and I'm just going to go out there and live however I want. So the, the first one says, I can't keep this rule, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. Second, the second lie is that you can keep this rule, that you can keep this commandment. And this lie tells us, if you just muster up enough willpower, if you just try a little bit harder, then you can be at least as good, if not better, than your neighbor, and you can pass the final exam when you stand before God one day. You can do it. Just try a little bit harder. This lie leads us to what we call legalism. And I love Warren Wearsby's definition of this. It's legal, legalism is the belief that I can become holy, that I can please God. How? By obeying laws. It is measuring spirituality by a list of do's and don'ts. So whether or not for you, maybe it's the, Mo the law of Moses, the 613 commands in the Old Testament, or you've got your own list of do's and don'ts that you're trying to live up by, because whatever system of do's and don'ts I, I create for myself, that's how I'm going to impress God, by keeping these rules. And, and that's also a lie. Listen, the first lie is hopelessness, which leads us to just self-indulgence, to do whatever we want. The second lie is hopefulness, but it's hope in the wrong thing. That I, through my own self-effort, for me becoming good, self-righteous before God, I can please him, I can impress him. And listen, trying to keep the law on our own will always only lead us to two things. The first one's hypocrisy. Where I, I put on a good show, man. And everyone thinks, on the outside, it looks like I got my act together. But on the inside, man, I know the double life that I'm living. So it can lead us to hypocrisy, or the other way it can lead us is to despair. When I finally come to terms with the fact that I know the game, the game is up. Like, I can't, I cannot keep this law. I cannot please God. And it leads us to depression and hopelessness. Both are lies. And listen to me, believing either one will lead to death. Separation from God, destruction. So let's look at the fourth, the fourth one. I promise this one gets a little bit more cheerful. The, the law points us to the sin crusher. Sin crusher. Verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Again, the problem is not the law. God's standard of holiness is good and right. If Israel had kept it, they would have lived the way that he designed them to live. There would have been health and prosperity and vitality in the land. They would have been a light to the end of the, ends of the earth. Loving God, loving their neighbors. The law is good. The problem is us. The problem is us. See, all that we've seen so far is the law reveals sin, it, it arouses more sin, it, it's used by sin to kill and deceive us. So you might go, well, then how in the world is that good? Here's how God uses the law for good. Watchman Nee, I like the way he said it. He said, we need, we need, you and I, we need to have our weakness proved to ourselves beyond dispute. We need to come to understand the depths of our sin, the utter helplessness that we have apart from God. He says that's why God gave us the law. God never gave us the law to keep. He knew we couldn't keep it in our flesh. That didn't surprise him. 
He knew that, P- that Israel would break the law. He didn't give it to us ultimately to keep. Look at what he says. He gave us the law to break. He gave us the law to break. Well, what's that mean? Until I saw the depth of my sin problem, as revealed by the MRI, until I saw that, I would have never asked for a new hip, right? That is expensive. It is painful. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? That would not be my choice. I would try to make my old hip better. Try to do whatever I could to improve myself. Take away the pain. Improve my condition. But the MRI is good precisely because it led me, leads me, will lead me to the doctor's good gift of a new hip. Now, unfortunately, unlike salvation, the free hips are, or the, the hips are definitively not free. Um, but, but here's what Paul says in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Law's not the problem. It's how sin used it. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, to show how sinful sin is, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here's the beautiful thing of, of what, the, what, G, what God can do with the law, how he can use it in our lives. If, if our sin isn't revealed, if the utter depths, the, the, the fullness of our sin is not fully seen, then we're never going to be driven to the Savior of those sins. We are never going to look for a solution outside of ourselves. But Galatians 3 tells us this is exactly why he gave us the law. Look at, he tells us, right, blatantly. Why then, the New Living says, was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. That's why he gave it to us, so that we would see how sinful we are. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. Who was that promised child? It's the sin crusher. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus himself. And it says in verse 24, the the NASB says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Because none of us can be justified by works, by keeping a law. The only way we're going to be declared right, put onto God's team, is through faith in Jesus. See, God isn't interested in making your old nature better, improving it. He wants to give you a new hip. He wants to give you a new nature, the very life of Jesus in you. That's our only hope for righteousness and salvation. And it is a beautiful grace of God to expose us in our sins. Why? Because it leads us to the Savior. Sin used the law to trick us, to try to kill us, to increase our sin. But here's what God did. He brilliantly flipped sin's plans on its head, and he uses that exposure to drive us to the cross, to drive us to the beautiful name of Jesus. So as we conclude, I want to talk to two people here today, and maybe you found yourself in both camps here. First person I want to talk to is the, the one who has a false hope in their own ability to be righteous, like this little clown. We might think that we're stronger than we really are. You see, maybe you came in here today feeling pretty good about yourself. You're like, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm certainly better than my druggy neighbor down the street. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with girls that do, right? I attend church when I'm not on vacation. I'm even tied to my gross, man. Come on, come on. But what do we know? To you, I want to say, in love, most lovingly way possible, you're delusional. You're fooling yourself. Because God's law shows us that maybe the outside of the cup looks decently clean, 
But on the inside, there's nothing but ego, nothing but pride, nothing but the worship of self and not God, nothing worse, nothing but left there than but all the wrong desires and coveting. And even when we do good things in the flesh, we do them for the wrong reasons. And the gospel says there is true hope for you. But it's not in your own ability to keep a law. It's not in your own ability to earn merit badges for God. Believer or unbeliever, we can do nothing in our own strength that will impress God, that will please God, that will be accepted by God. That true hope lies in Jesus' righteousness. The life of Jesus placed in you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And to the second person, and I, and I suspect there's as many, if not more, of these in the room today, to the hopeless. And whether that hopelessness led you to self-indulgence, doing whatever you want right now in your life, or maybe it's led you to despair, hopelessness, or depression. Maybe you've come in this morning feeling pretty defeated. Maybe you've come in feeling like, yeah, I, I even believe Jesus saved me, but then I feel like I've been, kind of been left on my own to figure this thing out. And as I look around in this room and I see all these other super Christians, people who seem to be ministering a lot better than me, see people who seem to be stronger in their faith than, than I am. And yeah, I'm on the team, but I'm like that spazzy kid that can't even make a layup. Here's what I want to say to you. The gospel declares that you are no longer the spaz. The gospel tells us when we place our faith in Jesus, we are no longer declared sinners, but saints in the eyes of God. Yes, I can still go back and sin. That sin nature is still there, can still lie to me, can still deceive me, but I'm free from its power. And this is who I am now. I'm not the klutzy kid that can't run the three-man weave, right? I got LeBron James living inside of me, right? It's LBJ, LeBron Jesus, right? And now not only can I make layups, I can slam dunk, right? And not because of how awesome I am, but the spirit that indwells me is none other than the risen Jesus. And everything that he calls me to do, I can do, not because of how great I am, but because of the one living inside of me. One of my favorite hymns says it this way. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. He says, listen, I know you. And I know the depths of your helplessness apart from me. It's not just that your strength is small. It's not there at all. You can do nothing on your own. I know that. God knows that about you. We're not going to surprise him. We're not going to surprise him with our sin. We're not going to surprise him with our faithlessness, with our spiritual adultery. And he knows our hearts. I know, I know you. Your strength indeed is small. And he says, child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Everything I've asked you to do or to be, I am for you. You couldn't keep the law, so I kept it for you. You couldn't pay the price for your sin beyond an eternity of separation for me. So I died on the cross once and for all for you. And now in me, there is no condemnation. Jesus says you have the power of the resurrected Son of God living inside of you. We are forgiven. We are empowered to do every single thing God has asked us to do, to grow, become more like Jesus, not because of what we can do on our own, because of who Christ is in us and the promise that God made to us. And every promise of God is yes in Jesus. Father God, 
Man, I know, I just want to confess here today, as I know there's brothers and sisters echoing, that, man, I can't, I can't please you on my own, and yet how foolishly I, I return. I return to my self-effort, and I just so hope that maybe if my church is big enough, that maybe if my, my sermon was good enough, that maybe if my, my, I impressed enough people with, with my personality, or whatever it is for us today, that then in, in hopes that, that people will like me, that God will like me, that I'll be accepted and validated. And God, I repent of that. I have no grounds to please you on my own. And that, that this, the law to the proud would drive me to the cross and embrace Jesus as my only hope, as my only righteousness. And there's any brothers and sisters who can echo that with me today, that they would find the same hope, not in themselves, but in Jesus. Lord, I also want to pray for my brothers and sisters, as I know I get there too, with my anxiety, with my fear, with, with my depression, when it comes to the place where I just think, man, God, I can't do anything, that I become painstakingly aware of my failure, but Satan uses that to turn me inward, not toward repentance in Jesus, but wallowing in self-despair. Father, lift our heads up that these children of weakness would watch and pray and say, yeah, there's nothing good in me, but I have everything in everything that I need in Jesus. And we find our hope in him and Give us the grace to trust that you've called us to become more like Jesus, that you've called us to go and make disciples, that you've called us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that everything you've called us to do, you will be doing in and through us through the risen Jesus. It's in him who abides in us, who is victorious, who is all-powerful, who is all-loving, who will never leave us nor forsake us, that we pray and we worship. Amen.